Hi, I'm Chris. Welcome to Animates. Uh, you just heard the intro to the show we'll be talking about today, which if you're unfamiliar with that theme, uh, you probably lived under a rock as a kid in the 90s. Uh, otherwise, I hope you recognize it as Batman the Animated Series. Let's go! Let's <laughs> let's go! Uh, this show uh, just... Uh, I had so much. I'm having a lot of fun watching it, so I'm excited to be able to talk about it today. Which this is new territory for Paige and I because, technically speaking, this is the first dedicated comic book show that we are doing, and naturally, we picked a very auspicious one for that purpose. It's a really great show. Um, but first, I want to talk about the structure, maybe, before we get started recording. So this episode is just going to be about season one of Batman, uh, which is 65 episodes long. And then we're going to watch season two and record a second episode on season two. So all that we talk about here will be uh, based on season one. Now, it should be noted that... Uh, the first season of Batman, at the very least on the services on which they're being it watched, is 60 episodes long. So it's 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 basically what would normally be two seasons. The maximum amount of shows per season that we typically see in TV, which is like 22 or 24 episodes, is basically... This is basically two seasons worth of... 25-minute episode material. It's 65 episodes. We also ran into this with Animaniacs. Um, 65 episodes is the minimum number of episodes required for syndication. So you get very many shows, especially where, like, season one is longer. They try to produce enough shows where the show can be syndicated. And boy, was it syndicated <laughs> so many reruns i remember watching of, of batman episodes and it always seemed to be the same ones i never i never managed as a kid to see them in order or all of them so this is our second wb show first we had Anim animaniacs and like that show this one aired before the wb network existed so it would have aired on box kids um, just like Animaniacs. Right, and they do, at the beginning of the episode, they put up the little Warner Brothers sigil that transitions into blimps with lights. Super cool. It's a very understated intro. There's no text. It never even says Batman. It, and it's because it's the only sound is Danny Elfman's score and watching Batman chase down some bank robbers, and all of the gunshots or uh, punches, they're all accentuated with trumpets and brass, and it, it tells this story that basically is like, here's Batman. He, he skulks in the dark, and he punches bad guys. Yeah, and then we see him on top of a building uh, with lightning illuminating. You see his full costume, and then it fades out, and you see an extremely noir-looking title card and picture for that episode. And they're they're so good. And there's a little, there's a unique theme that plays every time, like over every episode that's unique to kind of the episode. It's very, very intricate. I think it's really effective for setting a mood. Now the show, if you if you are not initiated into watching a lot of Batman, right? The show first ended up airing right early 90s specifically 1992. Right? So I would have been 2 years old. So most most of my experience is it, it having been in syndication. Because uh, I wasn't alive yet. So this is something that I was already getting into it after its heyday had kind of not not come and gone. 
because when I was watching TV, the Justice League show came on and, and Batman was a big part of that. So I got to kind of watch the initial DC animated universe take shape, which was a fun adventure for me. And I, I don't have, I don't have an, a limit to how much good stuff I can say. So let me just introduce you to the developers, the people who, obviously, the show did not create Batman. Like, Batman's been around <laughs> for a long time. But the show was developed by Bruce Tim and Eric Radomski. These two are basically credited with beginning the DC animated universe in the modern era. And it really kicked it off. And it, this is the Batman that most people think of. So it's no, it's very much hard to understate how important this show was and likely creating all of the Batman frenzy that followed. We're talking um, continuing animation on TV. We're talking like even the Christopher Nolan movies, like everything that followed after the show owes homage here. For example, uh, the Batman look in the 90s movies and the animated series was a design created specifically for that animated series. It was inspired by the comics, but it never appears in the comics. It is the most iconic and definitive example of Batman's costume. That version of the costume, if you think of Batman, the costume that you're imagining is most likely the costume from the animated series. Now, the the show had a lot of writers, um, and there are a couple of noteworthy ones. Uh, the show had some, like a common revolving door here of directors, Bruce Tim and Eric Radomski being two of those people. Yeah, I know Bruce Tim was a big one as well. Yeah, Kevin... Altieri was another one. Kent Butterworth, Boyd Kirkland, Frank Parr, Dan Ribba, Dick Sebast, and Bruce Tim, of course. Now uh, you'll notice that it's a boys' club, which is not, um, which is not really, it's par for the course at at, at this point, especially in comic book stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was thinking Bruce Tim was a director, but I might be wrong, actually. I think he was a major writer. He wrote, like, most of the episodes. Yeah, and, and the names are very prominently displayed at the beginning of the episode, so it, it's nice to see who, who lended their talents to each episode. Um, so as far as... Uh, I can't leave out Danny Elfman. Danny motherfucking Elfman... Um, making the entire show ear candy. Be if you don't know who Danny Elfman is, shame on you. Uh, but he he did music for the Batman and Batman Returns, but he also did music. He's, he's done a lot of stuff for Tim Burton, right? Nightmare Before... Yeah, he does all of Tim Burton's movies. Like, all of... Uh, most, if not all of his animated... Well, quote-unquote animated movies... So he's a big deal, and he make he makes very interesting, very very interesting music. So the entire did you know he was an Oingo Boingo? No, they were like a second rate third wave band in the eighties. It's something I just learned recently. Danny Elfman was in this band, and it just it just kills me. I think it's really funny. That <laughs> that's kind of hard to believe. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Granted, there were other composers on the show. Danny Elfman wasn't the only person to compose music for the show. Another big composer for the show was a woman, Sharon something, I can't remember. She actually worked with Danny Elfman. Uh, apparently, he uses her as a conductor. She was the other second most prolific composer for the show. Are you thinking about Shirley Walker? Yes, Good, 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 good. So the the show's characters, and there are many, there are many characters, 
uh, just sort of getting a little bit more into how definitive this version was. Bruce Wayne, Batman, right? Our, our key individual is voiced by Kevin Conroy. And this, every time I watch a Batman animated show that does not have Conroy voicing Batman, I'm a little bit disappointed. Just because he, I don't know, he's he's the voice of Batman. And, and this is why one of the most recent Batman movies, it's called The Killing Joke, it's really dark, it's really good. Um, why it was so good is because they got the original voice cast from this series, including Mark Hamill for The Joker. And <laughs> I know, I can't, I always say that with a little bit of... L- love in my voice um they got him to voice batman again so it's just it, really good voice acting all around he uses a distinct voice as bruce wayne and as batman which he didn't start it started with the tim burton batman films and it's funny because we've obviously seen that taken to the extreme with christian bale's portrayal of batman I am the knight. exactly like okay look then I'm Batman. So if I'm to believe certain political individuals, if everything is a horseshoe, then eventually we're going to come back around to where Bruce and Batman's voice is the same. Right? Um, definitely. So the, the show, I there's so many places to potentially begin. And I do want to provide a caveat. If you're unfamiliar with Batman as a character, with the show, basically, if you've never watched the show or consumed any Batman-related media, you should go do that. Because these characters are well-known. And we are not going to provide origin stories or... Uh, we are not going to give you basic exposition on these characters. We don't have enough time. There are too many of them. And that stuff hopefully is already in your cultural lexicon. And the show doesn't really do that either, which is really nice. Like, we just come in and everyone's here. Batman is Batman. Robin is Robin. They don't really do origin stories either. Well, but they do. Right. So they do origin stories when it's plot focused, when they need to introduce aspects to provide context to the plot, right? And if a character is really important, they do it. They do an origin story for Harvey Dent for Two-Face. He starts the show as Harvey and we see him become Two-Face. And then with Dick and... Freeze, they provide backstory to tell his motivation, but he's already, you know, it's done in flashback to give context to the story. And with most of the characters, we start the show and it's like they're there and we're not explaining where they came from. Uh, We get, we also get introductions for Clayface, kind of for Poison Ivy, none for the Joker. I mean, but that's, that's par for the course. And there are a couple of others, but... A lot of them are already who they are or who they are going to be. Um, We get some background on Bruce becoming or learning the skills to become Batman, but only when characters from his past are introduced. So it's kind of like, here's why Bruce knows this magician or why Bruce knows this samurai. Uh, He's actually not a samurai. He's a ninja. They're different. I was talking about his, I was talking about his master. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so we're not going to do that. And, and uh, only so much as it relates to the points that we're going to make about the show. Now, before we go forward, we should say there are some interesting things to note about the animation of the show. We are not uh, literal animation buffs in, in the sense that we aren't going through books and books of animation techniques, but there are some very basic, interesting points to note. For example, Paige loves this one. 
So, first of all, the backgrounds of this show were animated on black paper with light colors, which is the opposite of how most cartoons work. Uh, the only other show we've watched that did this is Gargoyles, and it gives the show a really distinct look. It looks very dark, and it actually looks like it's nighttime, whereas most other shows don't actually look like nighttime, even when it's supposed to be nighttime. It really helps when we're on the street level of Gotham City to make the whole place look as stark, sometimes run down, as, as I think they very much intended to do, to show Gotham as being this, a certain type of place. Yes, definitely. In addition, I've, I've always loved the aesthetic of the show, which has been described by Bruce Tim as dark deco. So, so if you're unfamiliar with deco art. Art deco. Art deco. It was a particularly popular art style that focused on... In the 30s. They're really focused on blockiness, like stark, stark angles, um, really solid shapes. I'm not in... It was popular in the 1930s. So if you think about a sort of design aesthetic related to how a lot of buildings looked in the 20s and 30s, what you're probably thinking of is Art Deco. So every, the, the, and the, this will partially go to um, another point, but that architecture is older, but the show takes place in a undefined modern time period that also uses uh, rotor planes, Art Deco, genetic mutation, and uh, Tommy guns. Yeah, it almost reminds me of Archer in this sort of timeless anachronism they have going on. Yeah, it's like they've got the the 40s crime bosses cross-mixed with AI, with working, really intelligent AI. The show is very much like, I don't care what year it is. This is how things are. So deal, deal with it. So the aesthetic of like the noir and the dark de dark deco is all really cool. I, I love it to this day. The art of the show is praised a lot, and I think it's really good, and it deserves that praise. The one criticism of the animation that has been made, and the thing I see in it, is that the animation itself is kind of stiff. The actual animation and movement can be stiff. You see that a lot with the way that especially women, like the way women walk. It gets better as the show goes on. On, but the way that women walk in the show is really weird, especially Detective Montoya. It's like the animators were like, okay, women walk differently than men, so we need to make them move different. But their hips never move. It's like they don't actually know that's what makes women walk different. <laughs> well, except when they try to accentuate a woman's sexuality and then her hips literally move across the globe. But and I see this too, and and you see it in some of the action. I mean, there are artifacts in the animation of the action of the show. All of the backgrounds are very intricate, very nice, just beautiful backgrounds, and the stuff that they placed on top of it, like the animation of characters moving around and all that stuff. Like for the most part, it's it's pretty good. But there, there are occasions where you're just like, eh, it doesn't look as good as it possibly could. Or, oh, that's like a little bit weird. The way they chose to animate that is not really that great. But I think the story is interesting enough that you don't focus on those artifacts. Yeah, another thing about the animation is that they have a ton of fight scenes and they do them really well. And the thing about fight scenes is that a fight scene is where everything can quickly go to hell if you're not careful, where you just do not know what's going on at all. And that never happens in Batman. And I think Chris said he thinks it's because there are so many people there with a comics background, right? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that's one theory, I suppose. I don't know if it's... I, I, don't, I don't know how much that truly contributed, but that, that, that's just kind of what I was musing about. But the fights are always clearly laid out, and you can always clearly follow what's happening. Well, see, and, and that's something that I know that, that you, you would have a lot of practice paneling that in a comic book. You have to do it without any animation so that people can follow what you're doing. So that, that naturally kind of made sense to me is, oh, these people are good at this because they, at the very least, they work for a company that does this stuff on the reg very well. So It's just very exciting when things look so good. Uh, it is primarily episodic where there are individual episodes and you'll occasionally see an episode that assumes you know something or who someone is or that this happened before that. And occasionally there are two-part episodes, but primarily it's episodic. Two-parters are usually introductions of a new villain in some way. So, for example, Harvey becoming Two-Face was a two-parter. And introducing Clayface. Clayface's origin was a two-part episode. Uh, Rachel Ghoul or Rasa Ghoul. Ah, there, there are a couple different ways. Yeah, how it's said depends on the show. Yeah, and and this is this is one of those pronunciations that it changes with the continuity. But um, I've always said uh, Rachel Ghoul, but this is something that uh, two parters come along, and they're they're always really good. I've I've always enjoyed every two-parter because you really get to see Batman get into detective mode. For sure. And we get a really good two-parter for Robin's backstory. Yes. Yes. It made me feel. So just as a note, Robin in the show is Dick Grayson, but he wears the first iteration of Tim Drake's costume, even though he's Dick Grayson. I will say, if you're unfamiliar with Robin, all you need to know is that Batman's kind of got a revolving door of orphans. <laughs> if Bruce Wayne wasn't Batman, we'd think there's something really fishy going on. So he, he, he picks up kids in dire straits, and invariably they kind of become the new Robin when one leaves the nest, usually to go do their own thing, but one time they died. Uh, Jason. It's a big deal. I mean, there isn't anything else too notable about this Robin other than wearing the, uh, Tim Drake's costume. But was there anything else about Dick Grayson that's interesting? He's really old. Like, to be to be a Robin. So a lot of time, if you've ever seen Teen Titans, that's Dick Grayson. That's the Rob. The best Robin. Be yeah, best Robin. <laughs> um, I mean... Tim Drake is pretty cool, but, but Dick Grayson, usually by the time he hits his late teens, early twenties, he's gone on to be Nightwing, which is sort of, he does his own thing. He's, he occasionally works with Batman, but he's his own superhero. Right. And Dick in the show is in college, a freshman in college. And there are some things that I've read and some things I've seen from watching this that indicate that by the end of the series, he is Nightwing. So we're really witnessing a transitional period for Dick. Yeah. And I mean, you see Batman and Dick fight like the seeds of him leaving are there. And a lot of that conflict is in Robin's Reckoning. Um, so this is the two-parter episode where we get a lot of Dick's backstory. So I want to talk about the plot for a minute. Basically, Batman and Robin catch some dudes doing a protection racket. They say who their boss is, and Robin is like, yeah, let's go fucking get him. And Batman is like, no, you have to stay home. And Robin is like, this is bullshit. I'm not a child anymore, and you do have to explain yourself to me, and I'm going to be involved. And it turns out it's because... Well, the Graysons were circus people. They were trapeze artists. And his parents died. Um, and there was someone who was responsible for his parents dying because he was running a protection racket in the circus. And it turns out that this is that guy. And Batman knows it. 
this all happened when Dick was a child, and apparently he tried to go after the guy on his own when he was a kid, and it ended up being a problem, but it led to Dick becoming Robin. So yeah, Batman basically knows that he will let his personal feelings get in the way, that he could risk killing him or worse, that he would get hurt. That's Batman's explanation to Robin is that I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want to lose you too. And I thought it was my assumption and Dick's assumption was that Bruce didn't want to tell him because he was worried that this would be too emotional for Dick and that he might go too far. But according to Bruce, that wasn't the reason why. Oh, but Bruce lies. That's true. He does lie a lot. Well, okay, he doesn't lie. He... Yes, he does. He omits the truth. That's lying. He he says things a different way. Ugh. Okay, fine. But he's not dishonest. He's not dishonest. Okay, so... That episode is really great because we get to see the backstory of Dick with the circus people and the way his parents died in a trapeze accident and it's due to sabotage. Something else that I didn't know is that Bruce was in the audience because the performance was a Wayne Charities event and that's how he meets Dick. But I don't know if this is the same version of the backstory from the comics. It is. Tony Zuko is always in there. Is it always intentional? Yeah, it's, it's always uh, not an accident. Okay, okay, yeah. And one other thing, there's a very sweet flashback about, I think Dick is supposed to be about 10 or 11. Which is kind of when we would normally see him be Robin, is like 12 to 15. Yeah, and it tells a sweet side of Bruce and them spending time with each other, Dick being lonely, and Alfred telling Bruce that there was a little boy who needs your love. And of course, that end up, ends up leading him to be like, hey, come fight crime with me. Very, very safe, very responsible parenting. Now, uh, as we go forward, we, we naturally have a lot to I, I have a lot to say about, about Batman as a character. Um, the villains are all really interesting. Uh, I think a really good place to start would be to start providing some analysis of particular situations. For example, um, this show invented Harley Quinn. Yeah, I love it. A lot of people don't know that the show invented Harley Quinn and that she was so popular that she got into the comics. Harley Quinn's actual backstory is that she was a highly educated woman, Dr. Harleen Quinzel. She was a psychiatrist in Arkham Asylum, and that's how she met the Joker and eventually formed a relationship with him. So she is a highly educated woman, and something that also I also didn't, even though I knew the show invented Harley Quinn, I did not know that they fully baldly portrayed her relationship with the Joker as an abusive romantic relationship from the very beginning. Yeah, from the from the first episode that Har Harley Quinn is in there, the Joker pushes her around, treats her like crap. And this has been something that I think they knew that it was always bad. And I think they knew it was bad because they gave they they had characters being like Harley, you need to get the hell away from the Joker. Even when she thinks he's dead at one point, she's saying, oh, what am I going to do? And Bullock is like, he was a demented, abusive, you know, creep or whatever. He literally says the word abusive and she says, oh, I'm going to miss him. And of course, there's Harley and Ivy, a dope episode. Ivy is really pushing the idea that this guy is a piece of shit and he treats you like shit. You need to get away from him. Recognize that as a problem in in the Harley and Ivy episode. So basically this is an episode where Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn, they team up because the Joker kicks Harley out for making a totally reasonable mistake. And it's dope. It's really fun. The whole episode is really fun. And Poison Ivy makes so like a lot of really funny cracks about female empowerment. 
Also, Dr. Pamela Isley, another highly educated woman. There are a lot of there are a lot of women doctors in the show because we've got like uh, just a lot of the side characters, but also, you know, Pamela, Harley. We've got Batman's confidant, Leslie. A lot of really talented women in this particular show. There are a couple of episodes where they make an explicit point about, haha, women can beat you. Poison Ivy makes those points. They have Catwoman make those comments. Red Claw, I think, makes some of those comments. Quite a few people do. Well, and you know, now that I'm thinking about this, the show's women are really not two-dimensional at all no they're really good even though the people who made the show did not include a lot of women they somehow did a great at least in the early 90s a pretty good job of writing women each each person is unique even if they're only in one episode i mean um they all stand out from each other they've got really well defined personalities, motivations, uh, just really good. And it's like, I like, I really like their portrayal of Selena Kyle, I really, who Catwoman. I really, really like Barbara, who becomes Batgirl. Their portrayal of Poison Ivy is really, really good. Um, she's not a good person, but she's an interesting character with very clear motivations. And some of our analysis, go ahead. I have something to say about Selena Kyle and Pam Isley, who I do not think are that different in their motivations, nor in their tactics, because Poison Ivy is an eco-terrorist. At least when we first see her, she is an eco-terrorist, and she always has an environmentalist position. She is using violence to protect the environment or to, in some way, prevent people who serially hurt the environment from doing it again. Whereas Selena Kyle, whereas Catwoman, is doing the same thing, only instead of it being about plants, it's about wild animals, particularly wild cats. So I think this plays into the ethics of violence in Batman. I mean... They do a lot of, yeah, I, I was just about to say that I think their motivations share similarities, but their personalities are quite different. Yeah, okay, but she's, Batman is okay with what Catwoman does because he likes Selita Kyle. Well, also, well, but also Catwoman doesn't try and kill anybody. She would never kill anybody. Yeah, okay, but she's, like... Like, okay, maybe a bad guy, but but Selena Kyle is at her core a kind person, and Ivy is not. From her perspective, these people are bad guys. They're destroying the planet. Okay, but you also then have to accept that her sort of wanton playing and with human life, which includes torture, is okay. So what I'm saying is there is a political bent to the portrayal of violence in Batman. Basically, violence is justified for certain purposes, but not for others. And, and there is also a semi-hard line on the taking of a human life, where basically that hard line is that Taking another life is never justified, no matter the situation, and if that you're if you're willing to take a life, that you're automatically bad, and that your motivations aren't justified. Now, I do not like hurting people. I do not condone killing people. But in the context of certain situations, it seems a little bit. In the context of Batman, it seems a little bit wonky to me. And secondly about the ethics of violence in Batman is that Batman enacts violence within a set of socially agreed upon rules that have been written down and codified as law. So it isn't said explicitly, but it says 
if you can use violence to enact law, whereas people like Poison Ivy... Now, it's also very clear, and I would like to say that it's it's good that violence for the sake of violence or violence for the sake of personal gain or personal gratification is bad. And I agree with that. I think that's good. But there are motivations for using violence or lawbreaking that, if examined in context, if applied to the real world, that we might agree that the people have a point that are automatically seen as this is bad, this is not a justification to use violence or a justification for breaking the law. Even when we first meet Catwoman, that's also the case at, at first. And those types of motivations are always things that are undermining of authority structures or undermining of the capitalist profit motive. Um, so those times that violence is definitely not justified, it's motives like protecting the environment, protecting animals, uh, protect or fighting for a country that's being colonized far away. But violence can be good when used for other purposes. And so I think that if applied to real life and when violence is allowed, there is something to be said about where that politics of where that line is drawn comes from. And I, for the most part, think that that's on the money. Uh, <laughs> now, that I'm not, <laughs> that's not, so um, you, you could argue that perhaps I'm about to be contrarian or that I'm narrowing it down too much to individual characters. But let's let's look at this idea a little bit closely when it has to do with Poison Ivy. So does Poison Ivy have a point that greedy people are destroying the planet? Absolutely. Absolutely. Her, her reasons make sense for why she why she does things. At least kinda at the beginning. She doesn't stay like this, is part of my point. But in the first episode where she's introduced, she poisons Harvey Dent for building a new prison. And she tries to poison Bruce because Bruce supports it. And the prison was built, and the prison was built on the land that contained an endangered rose. The prison's already built. Why didn't she try and stop it? Instead, she kills them after the fact. It's revenge. There's no, like, there's no, um, and you could argue, well, yeah, they fucked up the environment, but basically what you're doing is you're taking it out of prevention and you're making it revenge. Revenge for the roses. Yeah. I see what's being said. And I think it's good to point out that there is a specific difference between what we see in Pam and, and Selena do in that Selena's lawbreaking is an advance, whereas Pam's tends to be focused on revenge towards those who did it afterwards. Um. She's trying to make an example of them, but she does tend to do things after the fact. And I do want to say for the audience, I'm with I'm with you a hundred percent when it comes to Selena Kyle. Um at when Catwoman makes her appearance and Batman puts her in jail, I was like, fuck that. Um so especially because Selena Kyle only She's a Robin Hood of sorts, and she was only stealing gems and very, very superfluous objects from absurdly rich people. So you could still argue, yeah, personal harm, whatever. But in this context, I was like, you know what, Batman? You could just let her go. Um... Yeah, like, come on, Batman, you don't agree with this? You don't think we should eat the rich because you are rich? Funny. So, 
I, I, which we'll get into that in a bit. We'll talk about Bruce Wayne and Batman, but, um, but when it comes to people like Poison Ivy, listen, first episode, Poison Ivy's in. She is killing for what I consider to be revenge. And she's not even killing, like, Harvey Dent is not the most direct way to achieve her goals. Like, there are other people that, like, if the prison's for profit, we don't know that it is, she could go kill the warden. Not that I'm saying she should, I'm just saying that she tends to be reactionary. In the second episode, she invites people to a resort under the context that they have committed some environmental bugaboo. And she turns them into trees. An incredibly dope way of, like, killing people. Now, it's poetic, but it's also unjust. Because that's essentially torture. Is it? I don't know. We don't know that they remain sentient. Uh, It seems like that's kind of mincing words there. I mean... Well, if they don't remain sentient, then how can it be torture? Well, okay, again, you can see that her motives are revenge-based because guess what? Alfred goes there. Alfred hasn't done shit. She hurts him to hurt Bruce Wayne, who, by the way, fired the people who did the thing in the rainforest and he stopped it from happening. But Poison Ivy didn't know that and thought that Bruce Wayne was to blame anyway. She's she, she is not operating on a consistently moral basis despite the value that her ideas could have. And I'm not saying that violence is inappropriate all the time. What I'm saying is, is that she's not the flagship that you want to lay that flag on. Sure, but I wonder if... Your point is, okay, yeah, I agree that perhaps you could say specifically that, yeah, Pam is still bad in the way that she does violence. Can you still say, though, that it's still sending people the message that violence that has a positive motivation or effect is, like, psychotic? People are like, ew, she likes plants better than people, and she's, like, crazy. And so could you say that Buried in that, there's the message that any kind of violence or insurrectionary behavior on behalf of environmental justice is also still unjust. Oh, well, I I definitely think that if we're going to talk about the, like, putting her in Arkham instead of some other program, even just normal jail, yeah, I, I, I think that that's a little bit weird. And, and I... I've never considered her to be insane. In fact, the the only person who probably deserves to be in Arkham is the Joker. Yeah, sure. Maybe Two-Face, too. Um, Harvey needs some psych help. But, but I don't think she belongs in Arkham, and I think they put her in there because they, they a, yeah, they do believe she's kind of crazy, but she wears a costume. It's it, Arkham basically transitions from an asylum to a place to hold villains. And so it kind of loses the pretense that they're putting them there for psych help. And that's just where they put people who take on supervillain personas. But, but it still kind of sends the message, because it's still in an asylum, that yeah, that some of these people, anybody who's there, needs is, is psychologically disturbed. And I would not say... Pam is psychologically disturbed. I would say she's highly aggressive and she is probably high on psychopathy, but she's not clinically a psychopath. Yes. So I, she, she's just a highly aggressive, like high, high dark triad traits, you know, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. She's she, but within normal non-clinical ranges, so when I look at her, I, I'm looking at her as a person in their right mind engaging in this behavior. And that's part of why I'm like, ethically, this is so bad. 
because she is smart. She she could know better. And 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 she still commits revenge acts and then later in the show she starts stealing plants and toxins for no seeming purpose other than because she wants them. So so she I think my point still stands despite the way that she specifically does things, but I see the point that you're trying to make. Well, and, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that's why I can't abide her as, oh, Batman should leave her alone just because she's fighting for the planet. Because, um, you know, I would say, look at Selena, like Selena Kyle. I'm cool with her. Poison Ivy, no. It is, it is. And she helps him later. She's forgiving. She's also in love with Batman, but um, the other environmentalist we have on the show is Rachel Ghoul. And he's only he's only an environmentalist because he's like, the planet is fucked. And this is, again, if you look at what he says, you're like, okay, yes, I see where you're coming from. His plan is then to basically wipe out 3 billion people. Yeah, Rachel Gould is just a eugenicist. So I don't have any justifications to make for Rachel Gould because he's one of those people where, like, overpopulation is already a dubious concept, and then he follows it up immediately with exactly where he thought he, he was going, we should do genocide. So he's a eugenicist. He's bad. We leave from mere environmental justice to his own, I was going to say mystical fascism, but fascism is already weird and mystical. He's occultism and fascism. He's just a fascist. Yeah. What? He's just like a Thanos. Just like uh, these typically male characters with lofty, lofty aspirations of balance in some way and just indiscriminately decide to kill in, na- in like the name of that goal and and oh and he's like you know what's totally a part of that balance in my mind me and the people that i like of course absolutely <laughs> my organization even though uh rachel ghoul used a giant private plane and a private helicopter and blew a bunch of shit up for no reason like, he's doing all these very environmentally taxing activities just because he wants to prove Batman can take his place. Like, so, I, I and I didn't think you were going to defend him because he's, and, and I was like, you know who's going to survive a catastrophe like that? Rich people. Like, it's so poorly thought through. Especially by, like, 2,000-odd eyes having studied a bunch of stuff about like this. So uh, I don't, I, I think the other environmentalist we have, is that it? Like who else is there? Yeah. It's mostly the three of them on the theme of uh, violence. There is the character red claw, who is also a woman. Um, they're like, she's just a terrorist, but I'm like, what's going on in her own country? In what way have we fucked it up? Like, oh, I guess she just likes violence. And because she's got this vague sort of feeling about her, like, okay, Eastern Bloc. And we know we really fucked around in those countries for, like, decades. Also, she just wants to, like, poison Gotham. Yeah, she's pretty poorly conceived. Because on the surface, she's supposed to be, like, I would make an argument that... She seems sort of vaguely like she's from an Eastern Bloc country. And, you know, we really did fuck around in those countries for decades. So at that time, there could be a legitimate reason for someone in one of those countries to engage in insurrectionary violence against the United States. And I could make an argument about how, you know, they're saying that that's bad or whatever, but they don't even really give her any of that motivation. It's just kind of a lazy skin to slap on a villain at the end of the Cold War era, you know, like, oh, she seems Russian. That'll make people know for sure that she's bad. It's too bad. 
We could have had more, but say la vie. We could have. Say la vie. We're closing in here on a, a decently sized episode, considering we're going to do another episode for Batman Season 2. But by the end of Season 1, and uh, in my childhood memory, I remember this happening way sooner than it did. No, it takes forever. And I was unhappy about that. I was unhappy about it, but at least I'll have her for the entire second season. Uh, Barbara Gordon, the commissioner's daughter, to save her father, wears the bat cape and the bat hood. Bat, bat girl. We Well, okay, bat girl, bat woman, bat girl. She's Batgirl. I know. She's a grown-ass woman. Yeah. God. Okay, what bothers me more than, like, the fact that she's called Batgirl is the fact that they tease that shit for, like, 25 episodes. Every time like, Barbara, Barbara appears, like, you're like, damn, uh, is this going to be the time? Exactly. Is this going to be the day? And it just, it does not keep happening. Dude, I, actually, I'd like to point out that Barbara's first appearance is in episode two, actually, um, when the Joker kidnaps the entire Gordon family and he and Robin are running all over the place trying to find them. And my reaction was, oh, shit, Barbara. And then she disappears for like 30 episodes and reappears with a completely different character model. They wanted us to know that she was coming. Yeah. <laughs> but not too soon. Just a little tease, Barbara. <laughs> so, they might not even have said that she was... I, I think at some point the Joker says Barbara, but I was just like, oh, hey, Commissioner Gordon, redheaded young woman, Barbara. <laughs> that right. might have been actually what it was. And she, B- Batgirl was in the Batman movies. So yeah. like people... It was going to happen. It was just a matter mm-hmm. of time. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, I I guess enough talking about how long it took us to finally get some Barbara action. But (laughs) Barbara appears and she, I I like the way that she becomes Batgirl. Mm -hmm. Bruce has no hand in it. It's basically in a moment of crisis, Barbara's like, I need to impersonate Batman. And she does like a badass. And she uses (laughs) her her own skills, particularly in gymnastics to, Mm -hmm. to portray as Batman. And then eventually her cowl gets ripped and her hair sticks out. And she's like, I'm going to save my dad. And I don't (laughs) care what you think, Robin, I'm going to be in this costume. Fuck you. And (laughs) she basically just fakes her way to being Batgirl. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not super familiar with Barbara as Batgirl in the comics, but in Batman the Animated Series, she has a distinctly Nancy Drew feel to her, and I fucking love it. Like, the episode where I first thought, yeah, we're going to get Batgirl now, and then we didn't get her for another, like, 25 episodes, was the one with the um, the fucking androids the humanoid androids (laughs) where she's like using her compact mirror to do shit and like picking locks like she yeah she's going out she's doing nancy drew shit well i mean if you if you take batman as primarily being a detective story because let's remember (laughs) that's that's batman's origin is primarily as a detective Mm mm-hmm then her her being Nancy Drew is about as accurate as you could be as far as, like, a analog goes. For sure. I'd also like to point out that um, Nancy Drew's dad is also a cop. Uh, I think chief of police of her town. The writers in the comics might have just stolen nancy drew there's and put her in a bat costume i was about to say they're standing around in a a a table at dc or or people are sitting in their apartments smoking a shit ton of weed and they're like dude (laughs) my daughter she's reading these nancy drew books wouldn't it be great if we did that but batman (laughs) 
And thus, Batgirl was born. <laughs> what is Nancy Drew but, like, Batman? <laughs> <laughs> Just a Batman that's a girl. <laughs> yeah, and we make her a redhead. <laughs> <laughs> because she's got to be fiery. <laughs> and that's about as metaphorical as we can think right now. Like, yeah. things have got to be just, like, one step from really concrete. Also, okay, something that hasn't been explicitly addressed yet in the, um, in this series is that, but I, that I read, is that apparently Barbara and Dick go to the same college and are friends in regular life and also interact as Batman, as, as Batgirl and Robin, but don't know each other's secret identities. They do keep it, they do keep it hidden from one another, at least for yeah. a while. Eventually, secret identities just kind of stop being important. I mean, once you get to the Justice League days, yeah. where, I, I don't know, gradually, as the... As scale gets more macro, it becomes mm-hmm. less about keeping identities and more about, like, beating the shit out of aliens. Yeah. So- Though, I something that bothers me about... the So they explicitly say at one point in the first season that Barbara goes to school out of town. Like, Gordon says something about Barbara being back in town home from school. But... Robin, like, Dick goes to Gotham University or whatever the fuck. So, does she transfer colleges? Do they address this? Do we see Barbara filling out transfer paperwork? Do all of her credits go over? Does she have to retake some classes? It's a classic continuity, like, very simple continuity error. It's like... No, I hate that. Well, well, out of town doesn't necessarily... so, So, New York has boroughs. Gotham is huge. Sure. It probably sure. it we know that it has boroughs. Gotham University mm-hmm. might be in a separate borough and thus quote unquote out of town. Fair. But he says she's like home from I guess she could live in the dorms and just be like, no, fuck off, dad. I'm not ever gonna come by for dinner during the school year. I'm gonna make specific visits home. Or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> People, I I think if you look at it too hard, these explanations may start to fail. But let's just assume that maybe she did transfer into Gotham and was out of town at one point. I don't. I don't Fine. <laughs> you yeah. You might just have to let that little mystery go to bed. Yeah. Let's talk about her character because. Okay. I I have always liked Barbara, and mm-hmm. I think this portrayal of her is very. It's good. It's straightforward. She is eventually treated with the respect that she earns by kicking ass and being intelligent. And the fact that Bruce eventually does not make her. Because let's be honest, if Bruce really wanted to, he could make her stop. He's like, okay, join the team, let's go, and she's just kind of a part of the team. I, I, it feels really good to have looked up to. A, she's like uh, leading the way for the likes of other feminine heroes on TV that I always saw. Like She reminds me of Kim Possible, kind of. I thought you were going to say that, yeah. Yeah, because they spend, like, when Batgirl first appears in earnest, they spend, like, the first 15 minutes of her existence half-heartedly being like, who the fuck are you? This is not sanctioned. This is not a licensed Batman property. Like, you cannot be here. Stop it. Stop doing this. And then by the end of the episode, they're like, oh, okay, I guess you're helpful. Okay, it's it's fine or whatever. Yeah, come around and you feel like it. See you later. <laughs> you know, like, they just... They pretty rapidly give up on trying to make her not. Which could just be because they figure it would be more trouble than it's worth to try and eliminate her presence 
from their little boys club, which it very quickly could have become. It very quickly could have turned into, oh, look at these men telling this, like, glass ceiling shit. Mm, yeah, definitely. But they don't. They and accept her. Her her character's really great. She's very, very, she's intelligent, she's kind, but she's fiery and goes after the things that she wants. She is kind of a daddy's girl, but... If you're going to be a daddy's girl for somebody, at least it's Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, and I think it's really great that we get to have Barbara because all of the other major recurring women in the show are either villainous or at least sort of morally ambiguous. Um, I mean, like, I guess we have Detective Montoya, but she's a very, very small character so we have a whole, we have several female villains, and then we have Catwoman, who we've addressed, is sort of like a roguish hero, but she's a little bit morally ambiguous. And I would argue that even Summer Gleason, the reporter, who's another pretty big character, is, like, somewhat morally ambiguous. <laughs> Honestly, like, she's, like, not a bad person, but we see her being kind of not great in order to get the story. She's Whereas a- Barbara... She's a reporter. Yeah, she's a reporter. She's a reporter. I mean, (laughs) like, she plays hardball. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Whereas Barbara is just, she's good. She's a hero, and she's good. And that puts her alongside, what's her face? The old lady doctor that is Bruce's confidant. Yes. So she's also a great person, heroic in her own way. But she's, you know an old lady who most of her heroism is in through quiet determination or something like that. Whereas yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is awesome. But Barbara gets to be truly a hero who can kick ass in the same way that the guys can. And in the same way that the villainous women get to. So it's cool to be able to have a woman character who is, unambiguously good and heroic and who gets to kick ass in the same way. It's probably why she stood out so much against that backdrop. Cause mm-hmm. let's see. Superman has that in the, in the form of Lois Lane who mm-hmm. when okay. I, I realize this is Batman, not Superman, but I can't wait till we do Superman animated series. Cause Lois Lane in that show is so good. She's really? Mo- well, okay, because she's, yeah, she's this badass uh, reporter who always goes for the story, and she's really interested in the truth. She's upholding the journalistic ideal in a way so much so that she gets herself into trouble so much, but she's not afraid to go there, and very strong personality she doesn't blend into the background although superman is saving her a lot she saves him too and emotionally in in, in her own way because she's a regular human she's incredibly brave and uh very she's going to the top i don't know We'll, we'll we'll get back to her but it's nice that we get that person in batman who is also not an anti-hero like Selena yeah. Kyle. Yeah, for sure. It's great. I love Barbara. She's a cutie. Love her. But uh, I'm sure there are other people right, that we could talk about, and, and perhaps we will have to revisit some of these people as we see them change over the course of season two. I'm sure next time we'll be like, yep, Dick's gone. Now he's Nightwing. Real character development hours. <laughs> so, uh, just be ready for that, kids. Everything starts to fall apart. Not fall apart. People grow apart as they grow they older. They evolve. They evolve. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I I think this is a good place for us to wrap up. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, join us again next time when we talk about season two. We, we apologize uh, for the time it's taken to get this episode out we've been we are so sorry going through an odyssey of audio technical challenges 
it's been a nightmare. It truly has. So we've learned a bunch of stuff. At least the lesson has come now and not in the future when it was maybe more important. So Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening to Animates. I've been Paige. And I've been Chris. As always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes because that really helps other folks find the show. If you want to see more content from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Animates. We have a Facebook fan page called Animates Podcast where we will post uh, updates such as, we're having technical difficulties, please be patient. That's where you can find those. And of course, if you're furious about uh, at us about the technical difficulties and you need to write a long letter to us, you can always reach us with the email address animates with the numeral 8 at gmail.com.